This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bunker Books podcast. My name's Nick Cohen, and with me today is Guy Shrubsoul, who's written uh, an extraordinary book, I think, called Who Owns England? You might think you know your country. By the time you finish this book, you'll realise how little you understand about power, wealth, and land ownership. Uh, Guy, lovely to have you on. Lovely to be here. Hi, Nick. Right, Guy, um, it's, it's a bit of an unfair question to do when you've produced a book of great research, polemical anger, subtle argument, history going back to the Norman Conquest. But if you could, I'd like you to summarise what your book's about and what message it has in 90 seconds. Can you do that? Let's try. Let's do the elevator pitch. Let's go. Let's do it. All right. So Who Owns England is part detective novel, part history and part polemic. I want you to read it and I hope it makes your blood boil, but I hope you also don't just get mad, but you do something about it. When I started looking into this, I realised that land ownership is one of our deepest, darkest secrets in this country, in England. It's a secret that goes back into our history as far as the Norman Conquest, but takes us right up to date to the current crises we face in terms of the housing crisis, the climate crisis, how we use our land to produce food and how it's vital to our economy and to solving the ecological uh, catastrophes that we face. But it's incredibly hard to find out who owns land. And when you do find out who owns land, you realise that it's owned by a vanishingly small number of people. It's, in fact, 50% of England, by my best estimate, is owned by 1% of the population. So what do we do about that? Well, firstly, we need to open up the land registry, and uh, which is the government's official register of who owns land. And we need to make sure it's transparent we need to reform how land is owned and used and shared out amongst everyone. And we need to make sure that everyone has a greater stake in the land, because I think ultimately we all should have a greater stake in who owns England. Let's take your point one at a time. If I was a literate scribe in 1100, I could read the Doomsday Book and knew who owned every acre of England. Now you can't find out. Yes, that's the really bonkers thing. And Whilst I hope that someone somewhere in government has some sort of handle on this, I suspect that many civil servants don't and are also scratching their heads when they're trying to come up with things like the net zero strategy for how we decarbonise and how land is important, is, is absolutely essential to that, or how we solve the housing crisis. And actually, it's a closed book even to many people within government who are trying to work on these problems. It is absolutely mad. We have this land registry. Uh, it covers land ownership in England and in Wales as well, incidentally. 
and it's been around since 1862. And in that time, it still hasn't finished registering who owns all the land in England and Wales. And you think you had one job. <laughs> and 150 years in going. Yeah, exactly. You had one job and you've spent 150 years not, not completing it. To be fair to them, they have registered about 85% of it now. That 85%, which the government, what, from 1850 to 2021, has finally got round to mm. registering... Can you or can any of our listeners, can any any member of the public just go to the land registry or call us up online and see who owns, you know, the fields near their homes? This is the other problem, because you could do that, but you would also start having to pay an awful lot of money to find that out. So if I want to look up who owns a field or a property, I can do that. I can log on to the land registry online, um, but I have to pay £3 for every land title. That's every every parcel of land that's been registered with them. I have to pay that money. And that might not sound much for one or two properties. But when you realise that 24 million land titles have been registered with the land registry, then you start to see how the money would add up. I definitely didn't have the 72 million quid or so it would cost to to do it that way, um, to find out the answer that way. So I had to find some other kind of proxy methods to try and get a, a handle on this issue. Let's delve into the meat of the book a bit. Every now and again, I was reading it, and this is why I recommend it to listeners so strongly, is you, you just have these moments where you sit back and, and, and blow a little whistle and think, I never knew that, and how can this possibly be true? You talk about how strong the landed interest has been in England since the conquest until now. One of the ways you highlight it is by looking at how aristocratic estates have just survived for hundreds and hundreds of years owning large chunks of the country with no land reform, no parceling out to small farmers or whatever, and just the political power that has kept so much wealth in so few hands. That rather goes against the notion, which I'm afraid I've been guilty of propagating as well, that the old aristocracy doesn't matter anymore. Yes, I think that's a that's a common um, perception and probably one that I had as well. Sort of, you know, you go around some national trust properties and read about the aristocracy now or you sort of watch Downton Abbey or whatever and think, oh, well, how, how quaint and, you know, it, it's all sort of old and dead and buried. But no, they're very much still, you know, a, a living force in the countryside and indeed in London. The old landed estates that have owned central London for hundreds of years still do so by and large. Um, the Duke of Westminster, for example, owns hundreds of acres of uh, of Mayfair and uh, Belgravia and has grown extremely wealthy off the back of that. So yeah, I think this is a really, it's really eye-opening uh, and was, was eye-opening to me as I researched this. We think that we live in a capitalist society. Actually, we also live it, in one that still has uh, large chunks of feudalism left in it. And that's really, really uh, says a lot about England, I think, and about its history and it's about its present politics. I want to talk about two problems as our concentrated, secretive ownership of land gives us and how they affect our ability to deal with the great issues of the day. Let's go to your rewilding Britain hat first and talk about the environment. You keep hearing, uh, I think it was Michael Gove, saying he wants to plant billions upon billions of trees because we're the least forested country in Europe to help mitigate climate change. How the hell is he going to do it? Where is he going to plant them? Well, I think that's a very good question. And, and I think a, a lot of the debate about tree planting and woodland creation often uh, sort of focused is to the point of obsession on the number of trees and can't, can't everyone just help out by planting a few, but doesn't deal with the fact that the real constraint is the land and the willingness of landowners 
uh, and tenants and and so on to to do anything about it. Just recently, we've got the um, had the, the government's net zero strategy being issued, but you look in it and you look at what it's talking about in terms of land and changing the way in which we use land to sequester carbon, to draw it down out the atmosphere and lock it up in natural carbon sinks like peat or, or trees. And it's so much weaker than any other area of the economy. We are now doing more to regulate, thank goodness, things like the power sector uh, and expecting them to meet targets to cut carbon and so on. Obviously not enough and not fast enough. But you look at what's going on on land use and there's still hardly anything, any, any sort of sense of compulsion. There's such a deference still to people who own and manage land that they are, quote, the rightful custodians of land and that they know what to do about it. And that's not at all to dismiss, of course, that, you know, many farmers have local knowledge and know what they know their land intimately, but they know, won't necessarily be always managing it in the public interest. They may be managing for their self-interest. Well, there's also uh, the question of the uplands, which are, as you and George Monbiot and so many others point out, have become almost desert landscapes denuded by sheep and grouse and grouse moors. I mean, one of the one of the uh, facts in the book that sort of, as I said, just made me whistle is a size in England, an area the size of Greater London is given over to grouse shooting. Yes, it's absolutely astonishing, and and obviously because it's not you know that close to where a lot of people live, a lot, a lot most people won't realise that that such a vast area of our land is given over to this sport. And to be honest, personally, I, I don't mind people going and shooting some creatures, ideally to eat them to, for meat rather than just for mm-hmm. fun. I'm not quite so um, exercised by, by that as, a, as an issue, but it's the scale of it. It's the scale and the impact it has on the entire ecosystem. It's enough to turn you into an XR protester reading the bit <laughs> in your book where you point out that the owners of Grafsmoors are getting public subsidies. Yep, to the tune of probably about £10 million a year, at least, um, is what I've been able to find, and probably a lot more, actually. But yeah, it is it is kind of crazy that we um, we have propped up some of the most, most environmentally damaging practices in terms of land use through through taxpayers' money. And to give him some credit, you mentioned Michael Gove earlier, he was the you know, former Environment Secretary, um, and he, he did start that process of reforming farm subsidies. It's perhaps um, perhaps the only good thing that can still come from Brexit. Be careful here, Guy, because I was going to make that <laughs> point, but I thought I'd be thrown off the bunker. And probably I can see people <laughs> muscling, muscling into the room now, ready to drag me from the microphone. But, but it is true. It is true that Brexit allows the possibility of changing mm. how my money, your money, the listeners' money goes mm. to often very, very rich farmers and grouse moor owners and to redirect it to people who need it, to redirect it to people who are producing environmental, sustainable environments. How is that in reality going with a Conservative government? It's going very slowly. We're now some years into Brexit and into uh, this process of the reform of what used to be the common agricultural policy and there's now going to be a UK system of, of farm payments. And it started out with good intentions, I think, in terms of talking about public money being given for public goods like environmental protection or natural flood defences. But uh, it's, it's gone very slowly. And as things slow down, as processes of reform slow down, they tend to be captured by existing vested interests and lobbyists. And there is a concern that I think all of it's going to end up being a very similar system to before if we're not careful. If you were to say, let's just stay with tree planting or rewilding or making more of England a carbon sink, 
would you need to start compulsory purchase of, of estates just just to get the space for the planting for the rewilding? So, I mean, I think I think I should say something uh, in defence of of certain landowners. I, you know, people listening to this might think, oh, he just hates all the landowners, and he's just this is just the politics of envy, or you know, he's just out to have a go at them all. I think there are some very enlightened landowners who are doing some excellent things now, both small scale farmers in the Lake District, like James Rebanks, or you know, larger scale landowners such as the owners of the Nepa Estate, for example, in Sussex. And there's loads of other examples out there now who are starting to do things that are you know, on a spectrum from nature-friendly farming, you might call it, through to rewilding. So I think there is lots of good voluntary action going on. However, I don't think that that is going to be enough to create the sort of the sorts of scale of change that we're going to need, both to meet net zero as quickly as possible, and also to start to avert the other crisis that we face, which we hear much less about, which is the biodiversity crisis, mm. the collapse in species that we see around the world, but we've also seen in this country for a very long time it's been you know it's been a decline over centuries we've been driving that uh, through the way in which we've used and changed land uses we've got rid of 97 percent of all wildfire meadows since the world war ii and landowners plowed those up uh, partly in response to government subsidies but also that's something that we need to now be be dealing with through policy as and not just through voluntary activism on the part of individual landowners i think there was a report out a week or so ago guy about the uk having the least biological diversity of any country in Europe. Yes, uh, and it sits very low on uh, in global terms uh, in, in terms of having, you know, we've, we've denuded the countryside, we've denatured ourselves. And also, I think there is something that George Monbiot talks about is, is around shifting baselines. We sort of don't even under, don't even realise how much we've lost. So yeah, I think that's absolutely crucial to be dealing with. And you, you, just to come back, actually, I, I feel I didn't entirely answer your previous question about what sort of land reforms might be needed. Well, I, I think actually we could look over the border to what's going on in Scotland and we could actually learn a thing or two from what has been trialled there over the last 20 years since the evolution started was quite an interesting package of relatively modest land reforms, one of which was to give communities a real community right to buy land. We don't have that in the same degree in England. We have some weaker laws that got introduced with the Localism Act um, under David Cameron, but nothing like what they have in Scotland. And you know, a recent example of that has been a community buying out Langholm Moor from the Duke of Buccleuch, who is, I think, probably the biggest individual landowner in the whole of Britain. Mm-hmm. And it used to be a grouse moor. The community have been able to raise the funds through crowdsourced funding and buy uh, a chunk of that grouse moor, about 5,000 acres of it. And now they want to rewild it. They want to create a new nature reserve there. They want to also do some degree of repeopling of the landscape, because obviously in Scotland there was a whole history of the highland clearances and taking people off the land. But they want to put both wildlife and people back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
I think we're living through a, a shift in sensibility, like mm. the shift between you know, mid-18th century classicism and then romanticism, the complete opposite. I think that people want rewilding. They will go to areas where the trees are coming back, where beavers have been reintroduced, and, and provide income and jobs for local people. I've certainly, I, I love walking the northern fells, and I've certainly noticed in the last few years that, you, that, that, that my whole attitude towards them has changed. I start thinking of them as deserts now, as you say. Mm-hmm. And York Monbiot and yes. lots of other people say, I think, well, where's the birds? Yeah. You know, we're in all this open countryside, and I look up at the blue skies, which you occasionally see in the Lake District, not very often. <laughs> and, uh, and there's not a bird in sight, there's nothing. It's just yes. rock and a uh, sheep nibbled grass down virtually to the roots. That's it. The point I'm making is that is that this is not an attack on people who have to live in the countryside and earn a living from countryside. It might even help them. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, there's the early conservationist uh, Aldo Leopold said that seeing the world through an ecologist's eyes, it means seeing a world of wounds, which is certainly one way to ruin a good walk. As you've <laughs> but I think it's absolutely vital to see, start understanding those, that, those changes in our landscape, the way in which we've used our land. And rather than to look beneath the kind of the idea of, of England as being a green and pleasant land and the green being the, emph- you know, the emphatic word there, that isn't in itself a, a, an expression of ecological diversity just to see a nice green lawn uh, or a sheep nibbled hillside. We need to look beneath that and understand what's going on in terms of ecological processes. And, you know, ultimately, as you say, it would be a way of making rural economies more resilient, in fact, to, you know, if, particularly if we're being increasingly opened up to more and more trade deals with other parts of the world where they may be producing things more intensively, actually, we need to, well, we need to be first putting up, expecting uh, the same sorts of requirements from on imports as we expect of our own farmers. Um, but, but also it's about rural diversification, I think, as well. The second great theme of your book is, you know, there will be, who knows how many people listening to this podcast who are in their 20s and 30s and cannot afford the type of homes their parents lived in Land is absolutely essential to that. You point out that for all the talk about an Englishman's homes being his castle and this country being a property-owning democracy, only 5% of land is owned by homeowners. It's tiny. Yes, exactly. And and we often think that all of England is, is concreted over. To quote uh, a Conservative MP who owns a 14,000-acre estate in Dorset, one Richard Drax MP, he says that England is full. Well, some of his estate could be used for affordable housing, perhaps. Uh, clearly, England is not full, and his sort of insinuation there that we shouldn't be having any, uh, you know, migration to to the UK is obviously is, is obviously false as well. But but I think that's absolutely right. We don't we don't think about the housing crisis as being a land crisis, but fundamentally it is. It's not that the price of bricks and mortar themselves as raw materials have gone up in value. It's that the location value has has risen because it's um, land is very different to any other input. To the economy and you know Winston Churchill recognized this 100 years ago he said that it was you know it's fixed you can't move it around you can't trade it in that respect and the location value is is very very important and, and helps determine the value of, of housing the fact is is that we create the value of place collectively we create it through deciding to live in one area having jobs in that area locating jobs in that area we invest in public transport or public amenities or the school is nearby and so on. And so that, that is all created through 
everyone together, the community creating that value and the public sector also creating that value. And yet the value of the land, you know, if you could, if you owned a simply a vacant plot in the middle of Mayfair and did nothing to it, its value would go up and up and up because of the value being created around it. And therefore it became more valuable as well. So this is, I think, ultimately the argument of Henry George and the Georgists about a land value tax and why more of that value should be captured by community and not just by the individual landowner. Along with that, I mean, this will obviously be of listeners who are being asked to pay an absolute fortune for often very, very shoddy, low-quality housing, either in rent or in mortgage, is you Mm. say that we must go back to, the only way out of this is to go back to the spirit of the the parliamentary acts that created new towns where Mm. the government just said, right, we're going to compulsory purchase this land to build homes on, and we're purchasing at its value now. We're not going to let you say, oh, you can charge 10 times as much because there's permission to build housing on it and, and make a wholly unearned capital gain. There has to be compulsory purchase at current values. Exactly. Because that was done by initially by the Attlee government, and, and uh, but also continued under the Conservative governments of the 1950s, uh, during which time, you know, actually a huge uh, proportion of this country's social housing stock was created. I was, I was about to say that, that that could sound like a very socialist idea, but, uh, you know, actually it was, it was done by many conservative governments in the past until the land valuation rules were changed um, in the 60s. Uh, and then we started to see the inexorable rise slowly at first, but then, uh, you know, becoming more and more overheated, the inexorable rise in land values and the, and the housing crisis that we are now still in. And actually, it's not actually a socialist idea at all, really. It belongs to that school of thought that is, that, as I said, has been sort of abandoned by all parties which is a kind of more of Georgist, Henry Georgist kind of school, of yeah. thought, which is to understand that land values are, are an essential part of how the economy works. Guy, if you're a conservative, why would you want to increase the value of land tenfold and make the public and home buyers and taxpayers pay for it and give someone a tenfold increase in unearned income? It's not, you know, in, in terms of good stewardship of public resources, in terms of trying to get, because you're a Tory, you must be desperate for to increase home ownership. It's a terrible idea. Oh, I totally agree. And, and I, think, I think, you know, it's really only the property developers who gave, give money to the Conservative Party who stand to gain from this kind of broken system. Ultimately. And there are a hell of a lot of those. And, and there are. And, and I think, you know, I, I, what I hope is is what is slowly dawning, <laughs> maybe, is that actually to hold on to, you know, more red wall voters or indeed everyone under 30 uh, or <laughs> who wants to, to, to be able to afford a house in future, that something has to give, that something has to change. And actually saw some interesting moves to try and move in that direction under Theresa May during her premiership. Then that fell through uh, and uh, Theresa May was booted out and, you know, Boris Johnson came in. And then we had this sort of whole attempt to basically rip up the entire planning system, despite the fact that we have huge numbers of homes being given approval by the planning system, but remaining unbuilt Mm. by the developers. And I think now hopefully we're having another rethink, I hope, with Michael Gove, who's known as, you know, his new guys as housing secretary or or DLUC or however you pronounce the, uh, the new department of levelling up and housing and communities as well. So I think there is a rethink going on. And I really hope that those ministers are starting to think about how underneath the housing crisis is a crisis of land values. And we have to deal with that. Oh, God, Guy, we've got to put our trust in Michael Gove, have we? Um, uh, That would be a very, very depressing message to end on. But I'm not going to do it if I can, if I've got the time. Very quickly, you've got a lovely suggestion at the end of your book that 
every adult in England ought to have a right to an allotment. Can you explain that? Because I would love to have a right to an allotment. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, you may actually do already, you may already have a right to an allotment and you may not know it. Under the, I think, uh, 1907 Allotments Act, it was first uh, created a, 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 a essential right to um, an allotment because basically as compensation for the enclosure of the commons. Right. This is where this came from. Uh, and um, working class people living in cities at the time were like, well, we need to have some space in which to grow fresh fruit and veg mm. and lobbied hard and campaigned hard for that to happen. But the problem is that often nowadays councils, um, particularly following austerity, um, cash strapped councils just aren't delivering this sort of land, these sorts of land for allotments. You'll sit on a waiting list for years and years and then be told Actually, there's not enough, not enough space. But a radical government, a radical government that was also environmentally friendly and thought nothing could be greener than growing your own fruit and veg, will resurrect the right to an allotment from the grave. Absolutely. And I think that would be a great way to reconnect people with where our food comes from and with the soil and with nature as well. Yep. And brilliant because after the pandemic, or actually pandemic still seems to be going on as far as I can see, nothing is better for mental health than working and working with the soil exactly, and seeing nature grow. Okay, Guy, right. Now, we've come to the end. I now have a string of commercial announcements. The bunker comes out every day. Once a week, there's a quite kind of question time panel. There's bunker podcasts on books, on pods. I think there's one on global doom coming to cheer you all up. If you like it, if you like this programme, please could you give it a good rating on Spotify or Apple? Could you, because bizarrely journalism actually costs money, could you please consider subscribing to our Patreon account? You pay a few quid, you get all kinds of goodies and freebies and advance notices. And if you like this programme, could you email a link to five of your friends? If you didn't like it, could you email a link to five of your enemies? It only remains to me to say that who owns England... Published by William Collins, George Monbiot calls it crucial, Robert McFarlane calls it formidable, Chris Packham calls it important, and I call it very well written. Guy, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you very much, Nick. All right, that's it then. Goodbye, everybody. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.